Hey, what's up? Welcome to the 23rd episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the legendary MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to whatever I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Chantel Jennings, the former ESPN writer who now covers college football for The Athletic. And today we're going to talk about the power of letter writing and how one note can change a career. We'll also discuss the art of the profile, what Jessica looks for when she decides upon a subject, how she connects with the person she's writing about, what makes a great feature versus what makes a crappy feature. Right now, on Two Writers Sling and Yang. I'm going to start with an interesting one here, which is, and I'm going to embarrass you. Is that okay? <laughs> sure. I don't think I have an option, but uh, you have it. no option here. So um, about five minutes ago, you sent me a text and you said, hey, quick question mm-hmm. before we tape. Can I ask you why you asked me? I've listened to some of your other shows and I've read your list and I just don't really think I'm in the same orbit in the sports world as those people you. It's weird because you asked me, but I still feel strangely presumptuous. And I was thinking you are, how old are you, Chantal? 26, 27? 28. 28. And uh, I'm 45 and I've been around longer than you have in this business. And I wonder, and I think sometimes it's easy to forget actually what it is to be younger and coming up. And I wonder, um, because you've had a big gig, you worked for ESPN, now you work for The Athletic. These are legitimate gigs at big outlets covering college football. Do you see yourself sort of worthy of the company? I don't know if that's the right phrasing, but of, of older writers. Like when you see older writers who you read maybe when you were in college or in high school or whose names you know well, do you find it, I don't know, intimidating or weird? Do you feel like you have to earn their respect? Do you not give a crap? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I guess I haven't really ever thought about it that way. Um, you know, I think... That's a really good question. I guess the first question out out the gates, you've stumped me. Congratulations. Ah, I I don't know. I think more than anything, I'm just curious about how they do what they do. I think I respect um, I respect everyone I meet in this industry. It's not, especially now, it's not a tough or it's not an not an easy job to have. And so, um, I'm not really answering your question here. I. You're dodging. You're dodging. I know. It's not that I don't give a crap, but at the same time, I, and I, I'd sort of told you this before, I didn't grow up reading sports journalism. I didn't even think of this as a, as a career path until my sophomore year of college. And so it's not like I have read these people since I could read. It was in college. I, I sort of fell into this path that I really loved and I really love storytelling. And so there are a lot of people in this industry that I really admire and really respect, but, you know, to be in a room with some of those people versus other authors that I really admire and respect, I probably feel certainly more comfortable with sports writers, um, even huge name sports writers than I do with, uh, you know, if I were in, to be in a room with Sloan Crosley, then I might fangirl a little bit. How oh, funny. All right, there you go. Good. To, uh, good to know. So I will not, I will, I will not have Sloan. Uh, Sloan was going to join us on this podcast. I, I, no, I'm not. Oh, sure. Just to be safe. Um, 
So what happened? Um, I'm kind of interested in that, and I didn't know that. You, I know you went to the University of Michigan, 2011 grad. Um, you did not, you, sports writing was not on your radar until what? Until my sophomore year of college. Yeah, what I, happened <laughs> So I went to college, and like most people, I took the ACT or the SAT, and that sort of, you know, when you're 18, in a really terrible way, it sort of tells you what you're good at and what you're not good at. And I did well on math and science and I didn't do well on the English and the reading portion of it. And so there were colleges that had offered me scholarship money if I went to study engineering or medicine or whatever. And um, Michigan didn't, but I went there anyways. And I thought, well, you know, if other schools had offered me scholarship money, that must be what I'm supposed to do. And so I went to Michigan thinking I would be pre-med and I did that my first year and a half I did you know, Calc 1 and 2 and physics and chemistry. And my sophomore year, I got to uh, cellular and molecular biology. And I just, I hated it. Mostly, I just, it blows my mind that everything is made out of cells, which should have been the first sign that I had no right to be (laughs) a doctor because I just thought to myself, like, mitochondria and lysosomes? No way. Like, that's bullshit. I don't know if we're allowed to curse on the podcast. Yeah, of course, Um, of course. But I just, you know, I didn't believe it. There was like a part of me that was like tree, like a a tree is made out of bark and leaves and that's it. It's not cells. Um, And I did really poorly that first uh, biology exam and kind of came back after that first exam and just walked out of class was like, this is so not for me. Called my dad and was like, I can't do medicine. And It broke my mom's heart because I come from a family of three daughters and my mom is in medicine and she was, you know, hell bent on having one of us go into medicine. And I was the one who was supposed to do that, you know, and here I was saying that I didn't believe in cells. (laughs) And she was like, I raised an idiot. Um, And my my dad had worked for his college newspaper and he was like, you know, at a bare minimum, you'll make some friends. You know, best, it'll look good on your resume. Why don't you go do that? And so sophomore year, I joined the Michigan Daily and I walked in having never written an article in my life, having consumed journalism probably about as much as every other college sophomore. And the sports section was the only section that didn't require a portfolio. So it had the lowest standards, the lowest bar to jump over and um, kind of fell into that group of people and uh, a lot of whom are my my colleagues, I guess now, Nicole Auerbach, who I work with at The Athletic, um, was the same year as I was. Ryan Karchi's at the Orange County Register. He's the same year we were. Tim Rohan was the year bef- below us. He's at Monday Morning Quarterback. Um, Stephen Nesbitt, Zach Helfan. So there's a ton of us that are within a few years of each other at the Michigan Daily. And I just sort of fell in love with that environment and fell in love with sports writing and storytelling through sports. So is your mom like, fucking A, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, she wasn't pleased. God um, damn it, Chantel, you were our hope. I don't think she cried, but I will say that my junior year, I studied abroad uh, in Spain, and my birthday f- happened while I was away, and my mom had sent me an email like, did you get your birthday present? And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, they sent me something wonderful. I'm so excited. Um, and and it finally came and I opened it up and it was a book called I'm an English Major, Now What? <laughs> oh my God, that's so good. And um, yeah, so they, 
as many people did, I went through four years of college as an English major, assuming that I was going to come out with with an honors degree gainfully unemployed. And that is very much how I <laughs> I assumed my life would go. So um, I'm fortunate, I guess. Yes, yeah, seriously. You've had a, you've had a, uh, you know, you've had a really good rise, obviously. And um, you sent me something today that I just, I really loved. And you wrote it when you left, uh, when you left ESPN.com um, earlier this year to join The Athletic. Uh, it's called A Quick Thanks As I Go. I'm going to, I'm going to read you. So it won't be as pretentious as like someone reading themselves. I'll be <laughs> reading you so you can just sit back and enjoy the words. Um, as a junior in college, I won the Betsy Carter Award from the University of Michigan English Department. It was a certificate in $500. At the time, I was studying abroad in Seville, Spain. I used the money to pay for a week-long trip to Ireland, where I drank my weight in Guinness and danced to cover bands on O'Connell Street. Upon my return, I sent a handwritten thank you, note, uh, thank you card to Betsy Carter because she was, in fact, a real human, not just an award. She had written for the Michigan Daily during college and went on to have an impressive career as a journalist and writer. At the end of the letter, I threw in a note of, if you have a chance to talk, I'd love to. I assumed I would never hear from her, but she emailed me and said that once I get back stateside, I should give her a call. I did. We talked for an hour, and when my questions to her finally ended, she said, so I see you cover sports for the Michigan Daily. You should really come to New York and meet my husband. It was an odd thing to say. It actually is an odd thing to say. It's very funny. But she was a famous <laughs> writer, and at that point, with limited job prospects, I would have met her dog walker, she had asked. I told her I'd love to come meet him. Uh, she asked if I knew who her husband was. I said no. I thought this was another strange question. What turns out her husband was Gary Honig. He was the founder of ESPN, the magazine. And you went to New York and, um, and you asked why, why she was being that nice to you. And she said you were the first person to ever write her a card, the first winner of that scholarship to ever write her a card. And I, um, I love that story times a million, times a million. And I will tell you, I teach at Chapman University out here in Southern California. And I took my kids, all my students to an Angels game. Uh, the PR guy for the Angels, Tim Mead, was amazing with them. One person wrote him. I had Sean Green, the former Dodger, come to my class to speak. Nobody wrote him. And I just, I, I, that bit, that, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, that kind of made your career or jump-started your career. Or am I exaggerating that? No, I would say that's fair. It was, um, I don't know if it made my career. I, you know, I would have had, no reason to be sitting in front of the founder of ESP and the magazine, giving him my clips if it were not for that note, which was a decent thing to do. It wasn't even a great thing to do. It was the decent thing to do. And um, I, I hadn't had internships in college. Like I talk to journalism students sometimes and they ask me how I got into it. And I just think, you know, I did the decent thing and I had written a lot at Michigan and I had, had sacrificed into my classes in order to spend more time at the daily. And I'd given a lot to the daily. And mm -hmm. so when I had that opportunity, I had clips to put in front of Gary Honig and they happened to be hiring at the time, but it certainly that thank you note was what got my foot in the door because without it, there's no reason for me to be sitting in front of Gary Honig with, uh, with my portfolio. And it wasn't a thank you email. It was literally a written note. Yeah, I um, I think I went to, you know, one of the like cheesy little shops in Sevilla and found a, a card with a flamenco dancer on the front and, and wrote it to her. I just think the power, I, I, I just had this discussion with someone the other day, the power of sending someone a note 
like take, getting the actual stamp, putting on an envelope, writing a thank you note or how are you doing or how are you feeling or I'm thinking of you um, is almost a lost art. You know, we pre-print our Christmas cards now. We don't sign them, you know, like across the board. We email everything. We're reminded of it's someone's birthday on Facebook. So we press a little like and that's good. I just think there's a real power in that, you know, because it's rare and it's kind of lost. Yeah, I um, I had pen pals growing up. We we moved from Minnesota to Michigan when I was really young, and I had a friend back in Minnesota that I would write to. And, you know, it was even when I was in fourth and fifth grade that I sort of fell in love with just writing letters to one another. And it's sort of this instant gratification now because you can send someone a text and know what they were doing 22 seconds ago and so to get a letter it feels almost throwback but um to see someone's handwriting I don't know it's it it means more I don't I I don't know if it should because I guess it's old news at that point and we're in the business of everyone having the most recent news but you know my grandma would always send me cards and when I was at summer camp growing up my parents would would write out like stories literally they would, I have these saved somewhere. My dad and mom would come up with these elaborate stories about what was happening in the neighborhood while I was gone and they would pre-write them. But so every day I would get a new chapter of this story about what our neighbors down the street were doing and how the the neighborhood association had found out they were using green dye for their lawn and it was poisoning the water and the birds were getting sick and all of this stuff was happening. And I still remember that. And I was probably nine or 10 at the time. And so I think, um, yeah, it just, it means more. Yeah. That's pretty fantastic. Um, so you're a, uh, I say this, uh, with total sincerity, you're a freaking really good writer, like a really good writer. And, um, I've been reading your stuff and I don't give a crap about college football. Like I literally don't give a crap about college football. It, to me, it is, I, I just don't care. And I wonder, it is, is it a, is it a challenge to care? Like, these are younger guys. Like I always say, the thing that drove me, I used to, you know, I used to write for Sports Illustrated. And the thing that kind of drove me out of it was I found the seasons repetitive. I found the storylines repetitive. I just found it all kind of got a little stale after a while. And I wonder if, if you find that at all or if you, you have ways to keep it fresh and interesting and to go about reporting on the sport without getting tired of the sport. I think it's a good challenge to sort of find those different stories. And my job that I have now with The Athletic is a lot different than what I was doing with ESPN. I'm writing a lot less now. And so I have a little bit more time to dig in and find different stories. And so um, I can spend a full day reading what other people have written about something to find that that thing they dropped in that deserved more. Or um, Wait, give me an example. Give me an example of that. So you're looking for, because I always say to students, like you're looking for the little and you want to make it bigger. Like you want to find the nugget that seems interesting and then dig into it. So give me an example of something you've done with that. Because I love that actually idea. Well, I'm trying to think of, a, of an example right now. You can edit this out as I'm thinking. Yeah, we put you on the spot here. <laughs> um, I didn't, this is so weird to have the tables turned on me. This is me stalling right now. Well, did you um, know, let me, all right, so I have in front of me for an example, I've, Dante Pettis's reading list, defenses and the, uh, and the def- then the definitive works. And it's a really, really good story about this guy for, uh, who plays for University of Washington, Dante Pettis. And it's all about his love of reading. I mean, you literally, 
what I really like about the story, you go on and on and on. I keep waiting for you to make the stupid transition to, you know, he catches books, but he also catches footballs. But you actually <laughs> give it like this long sort of treatment about his reading habits. Like, how did you even know this guy loved to read? So that was probably the fourth I I called maybe four different people who knew Dante or um, had coached him or coached against him uh, to pick their brain. And early on, I had spoken with his wide receiver coach, Matt Lubick, who had said, you know, he takes all these notes. He's really meticulous. And I was like, all right, well, that's, you know, at best, I think that's like a secondary part of a story somewhere. uh, If I can find something better, because you know, people have taken good notes before. And then I was, I was talking with someone else and they said, you know, he's a really good reader. He loves to read and I love to read. And so whenever I come across someone who loves to read, I'm like, all right, well, what's the best book you read most recently? And sometimes people will just sort of say, well, I, I read the alchemist once when I was 12. Um, and I'm, you know, that's great. You should do that, but that doesn't necessarily make you a book lover. Or the Bible. But the... You get the Bible. <laughs> I used to get the Bible all the time from baseball players. What's your book? What book are you reading? The Bible. Uh, the Bible. Okay. The Bible. <laughs> right. Um, but no, so I was I was speaking with someone and they said that he had recommended um, this book by Ishmael Bea, um, A Long Way Gone, which is about child soldiers in Africa. And my boyfriend had read the book. I bought it initially because I'd seen an uh, an interview with Ishmael Bea. And I had bought the book and my boyfriend read it. And I my problem with reading is that I get really into, really into what I'm reading. And um, for this exact reason, I like can't read Eli Saslow anymore. After he wrote about the shooting in Southern Oregon, I, I had nightmares for like a week just because the writing was so good that I felt like I was living it over and over again while I was sleeping. But so he read the book and he said, you can't read this. It's too vivid. It's too good. It's really, it's really hard to get through. Um, So I wasn't going to read it. And this was the book that Dante Pettis had recommended to this person. And um, I was like, okay, this guy actually reads. And so I, I wrote that first uh, section of that story simply because that's how I felt going through the store with him because the first book he pulled off the shelf was a book I really like by Juno Diaz. And um, kind of from there, we just went around the bookstore and, you know, I, it, th- that was something that did make him unique. And I eventually got to the point in the story where I wrote about Matt Lubick saying that he's a really good note taker. Cause I think that sort of goes with his love of words and love of reading and writing. But just that first section was sort of my experience in the bookstore. And I think, Good writing takes you somewhere. And if I could sort of take people into that bookstore, I was doing my job. So how did you even, um, did you literally call the University of Washington and say, I want to go to a bookstore with this guy? Like how that even happened? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> exactly what I did. Um, I said, you know, I'm swinging for the fences here, but I'd like to write about Dante. I hear he's, uh, he loves reading. If we can go to a bookstore together, his favorite bookstore specifically, because I think, um, everyone sort of has their favorite bookstore, then it's, you know, if you are a book lover, it's sort of this really intimate place where you have your route that you sort of always go. I know for me in, at Powell's, um, you can sort of mark, you know, my my footprints along that store of where where I sort of make my way when I go. And so um, he, he said yes, and he agreed to it. And um, 
I was a little bit surprised, but I, it was really, really fun reporting. It, it was nice to just sort of talk about books with someone else who loved books and then realized, oh yeah, I'm, I'm doing this for work. I'm writing a story. I need to, you know, still ask questions about football. <laughs> do you, do you actually find it? Or so like, um, the lead to the story is it's very good. Dante Pettis knows his route. In fact, I read the first sentence of that story and I thought, oh, here we go. You know, it's going to be some stupid lead about like he runs routes and blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't at all. Through the doors and to the left, past the new releases and the bestsellers, he takes a quick right and turns a corner into a thin row of books. At its tallest, the shelves are above eye level for Pettis, making it easy for him to take stock of some suggested reads and newly placed novels. This guy is crazy good, he, he says. I mean, it's just like, it's really good. And again, you go on and on about books. And, and I feel like um, one thing that's nice about the internet like if I'd written that story when I was writing for the Nashville, Tennessee in like 1997, they would have been like, you can't have a 17 paragraph lead about this guy reading books. You got to get to the point of football. I mean, right. are you like, are, do you even like, do you even enjoy writing about the football itself or is it the characters who play football and the football is almost like, oh, I got to put this in too because it's kind of why I'm here writing about him. Do you know what I mean? Certainly the former. I yeah. think, you know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't grow up reading sports writing necessarily. I do remember reading a Rick, La Rick Riley column when I was in seventh grade about him coaching his daughter in basketball. And I mm -hmm. played basketball at the time. And I remember being so mad that he sort of characterized girls basketball as this really prissy thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, obviously sports writing made me feel something then, but it, you know, it didn't make me feel like I wanted to do it for a job necessarily. And I grew up with sisters, and so there wasn't a girls' football league none of us played. We played competitive sports and contact sports, but not football. My high school football team was terrible. We were like a cross-country school. Mm -hmm. um, and so I didn't, you know, football is not the reason I'm in this sport. Uh, or football is not the reason I'm in this job, I should say. And so it's about the reason why people connect to it, I think. Um, you know, I always, I always go back to the idea that my, my dad is a very closed off person in a lot of ways. Uh, my whole, you know, he's not someone who's going to sit down and tell you his life story, but there are stories through sports that he reads because he enjoys sports that allow him to open up and tell me stories about my grandpa and World War II and growing up in rural Minnesota. And so that's sort of, you know, the angle that at our best, I think a lot of sports writers are looking for, a lot of sports features, feature writers are looking for, and um, that's kind of what I go for. You know, I think Dante Pettis, I'm writing about him because he set the NCAA career record in punt touchdown or punt return touchdowns, but I don't want that to be what people leave the story with. I want them to feel something deeper about it or about him. Right. That makes sense, actually. Um, do you, do you, uh, are you watching college football on Saturdays? Oh, yeah. I, I, it's the only sport I do watch. I watch, you know, college football I know inside and out. I couldn't tell you anything about really any other league professionally or collegiately. Right. Um, but I do know college football. Right. <laughs> um, it's my job to know that. But, um, you know, before, before it was my job, I didn't. Um, and so you sort of – you have to become – well-versed and and 
know exactly what's going on in order to be a source or a trusted source in this industry. And um, that's a part of my job. And I think, you know, I have to do that. But I also, as someone who loves feature writing and as someone who loves telling stories, it is also equally important for me to find those sort of connective threads that make you feel like, you know, you as in my my 62-year-old father who lives in Michigan feel that sort of connective thread to some 21-year-old who plays football at Washington. Right. Do you, um, you said when I asked you, or, or I didn't ask you, but you texted me before um, <laughs> that you don't really, I know I'm exposing you now for all your texts. Uh, <laughs> you said, uh, you kind of uh, alluded to the fact that like, you don't really have a, I don't really like using the term because it's, it's so corny and self-indulgent, but the quote-unquote process of writing, like it's not, you're not one of these people who like, puts incredible deep thought into the process and how you go about it and blah, blah, blah. But do you, like, would you say you are, so you compile everything. You do, you, you have your Dante Pettis reporting done. You have everything you feel like you need to go. Um, do you then sit down in some office and just pound away? Are you tortured by it? Can you get it out in an hour? You know, how do you sort of go about it? I think it's different every time. The one thing I do, I, I guess I shouldn't say I don't have a process. The one thing I do is when I leave conversations with the people I'm writing about, I have a notebook and I might write down the quote that I remember them saying, because generally, you know, the only thing you want to quote is, and this is something that, you know, I learned at my non-journalism school at the Daily, but you only want to quote things that you can't say better than what they said themselves. Yeah. And so when I leave a conversation, I'll normally write in my notebook. Um, like literally I'm looking at the page from after I sat with Dante Pettis and I wrote, this guy is crazy good. Um, right. Which is a quote from your third so, paragraph. Right. Right. And so I leave the conversation sort of knowing the quotes that need to be in the story or that need to at least shape the story. Wait, why did that inform. quote? Why that quote of all the quotes? Because he was talking about Juno Diaz and it was something I would have said. Right. Um, right. And I, as he pulled it off the shelf in my head, I'm thinking, oh shit, Juno Diaz is so fucking good. Right. And he says to me, this guy's crazy good. And I'm like, yes, oh my gosh, we are connecting here. And is it, is it, um, is it like if he had said, if he had said, oh, Juno Diaz, this guy is an excellent writer, like wouldn't have done it, right? I mean, I guess it would have depended maybe where he went from that point, but just sort of that moment where I felt like, and that was the first, for me, that was when he pulled it off the shelf. That was, because I didn't know if this was going to work. You know, maybe Ishmael Bea's A Long Way Gone was the only book that he had read in the last six years, and he just happened to recommend that to someone and then told people he was a book lover, you mm -hmm. know? Right. I didn't know if this experiment was going to work of going to a bookstore with this guy. Everyone said he was a reader but no one had really gone further than that. And so that was sort of the first aha moment for me walking into the store with him, him pulling that book off the shelf where I thought, okay, this is legit. Right, um, so you wrote that down, you write that down and then what do you do? So I write that down. I might write down a few more quotes. Um, I'm looking through uh, my page right now. You literally have the notebook in front of you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, you're very well I prepared have... for this podcast, Chantel. I guess you nice job. <laughs> I told you. Yeah. Um, I told you I would be prepared if nothing else. Um, yeah, I have. Um, it's mostly. I mean, I have F. Scott Fitzgerald written down 
that was his favorite writer. So no, that was, I think that was the only quote that I really felt like I need to go here. And so it made sense to start there to some extent. Um, and I'm, I'm super jealous of all the people who can write a story without knowing where they start. Like the people who don't have their lead or their topper done before they get to the meat of the story. I'm so jealous of those people. I think that's a really unique skill. Um, yeah. But I, I can't, if I don't know where I'm starting, I just, I sit there and I look at the computer and then I drink more coffee and feel terrible about myself. But have you ever um, said this? Cause I say this a lot. Do you ever say this? Fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> have you ever said that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. Okay. And there are a lot of, a lot of points in my story where I will write blarg, blarg, blarg. That just means <laughs> That's good. Put a transition here. Right. Um, so yeah, I would say, you know, sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes it's not very difficult. Um, and I think my first instinct when it feels really, really hard is that I probably need to do more reporting. Um, and sometimes you can do all the reporting in the world and it's still really hard. And it's just, um, you kind of have to work through that and feel terrible about it and move on. But this one, I wasn't, I just write the stuff, I guess, and it sounds so simplistic. I write the stuff that I would want to read. And because I didn't grow up as this huge X's and O's football fan, you know, I'm sure there are people out there who think that they don't, you know, that don't like what I write or they don't like how I write. And that's okay. There are a lot of people out there who write X's and O's and I hope they find those writers. And I just sort of write how I feel like it makes sense in my gut. And I hope that my editor agrees because then I don't have to fight. And so, um, yeah, you know, I, um, I gotta say like, I, uh, I've written a good number of books and I've never, I've never written a book or an article thinking about like what the audience wants. I kind of always assume like if I'm happy with it or if I like an idea or I like where it's going, that's kind of the best you can do because you can't please everyone. It's impossible, you know? Yeah. And if that's, I mean, it's impossible. So you just sort of have to, and you're the person who's going to wrestle over it. If, if you hate what you've written because you wrote it for someone else, you know, you're the only one that's really going to sit there and struggle with it and, think about that for a long time so. right so how do you um you're uh your podcast number 23 but this, you're going to be the first person i ask this uh, just because it hasn't hasn't entered my head with others how do you um how do you take editing so an editor reads your thing and is like uh eh, no this doesn't work this sucks blah 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 move this move this move this you gotta do this call this person are you like okay because i'm gonna get better or are you like oh crap <laughs> i love editing yeah um... do you no you don't no, I do. Well, I think this is, you know, like what I was saying that looking at the list of people you've interviewed, I think to myself, my gosh, those are all really, really, really fucking good writers. Um, I don't, and this is, this isn't me trying to be whatever. I, I don't feel like I'm in that orbit. I want to be in that orbit. I want to be able to tell stories really well in whatever field it is that I end up in. Um, and I think I do that well right now, but I don't think I'm amazing by any means. And so I, I love the feedback and I love to be pushed. And um, if, you know, my, my first editor at ESPN really pushed me and my dad actually read a lot of what I was writing at ESPN as well. I would send it to him first and he was typically the toughest critic. Um, and I just really appreciate that because you can't think you're great. I don't know. I guess maybe some people do think they're great, but 
I certainly don't think I'm great. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a long way until I get there. And so if, if people can push me in different ways. And I also, I think I came into, you know, to, to steal a term from sports, to come into the industry with a chip on your shoulder. I didn't come into this industry with a journalism degree. At the Michigan Daily, the oldest person in the newsroom is 21. And they, you know, to be, if we're being honest, like two nights a week, they're drunk, you know, right. <laughs> like this maybe is three. a completely, I mean, maybe four, maybe five. This yeah, is right. a student run newspaper. And so right. it's not like we learned the right way to do things. And I think there's a really good part of that because we had these conversations where it was like, are we going to run a 6,000 word story on Denard Robinson tomorrow? Can we do this? Can right. we, and, and sort of having these debates of, you know, the merits of running a 6,000 word story on Denard Robinson, which I don't know if that happens in journalism school because a professor would say, I'm going to give you an F if you turn that into me. Right. But we would, we would do that on a, you know, Thursday night at one in the morning. Right. Um, which is great. So it is great. But I also think I came into this industry feeling like I was maybe three steps behind other people. And so I wanted to soak in all of this feedback because the feedback I'd had had been from other people who are my age, which was good and valid, but I also felt like I needed more training and to sort of be sharpened by people who did know the right way to do it. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I but... understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying because you were basically like, uh, I mean, you went from a student newspaper very quickly to ESPN. It's like going, you basically went from college to the majors real quickly without having uh, a major league season pitching coach helping you in the, you know, in Michigan. So you were jumping into a new pool with guys who, and women who had been doing this for a long time. Absolutely. And right. <laughs> this is a story that I've told a few times and this will be the um, most legitimate place I've ever told this. But if we want to get a gauge of how like journalistically stupid I was, um, my first, you know, coming into ESPN, I went straight from the daily to ESPN and I hadn't had an internship and I had good clips, but, you know, I hadn't worked in a newsroom outside of the Michigan Daily. And my editor at the time asked me to get him my budget. And in my brain, the word budget had one meaning, and that had to do with money. Uh -huh. And so <laughs> I literally sent him an email that was like, you know, I'll probably spend 15 to $20 on coffee this week. And oh, that's awesome. I guess gas money and maybe, you know, if I'm like, and just thinking of his face when he got this email like oh who's this hayseed who's this hayseed we got right, can we... <laughs> like can we get rid of her is it too late did she sign her contract already um and so i just i came in in some ways i mean very different which i think has been a good thing for me i don't i just sort of write in a different way maybe but i also didn't there was so much i didn't know and i also knew that there was a lot i didn't know so i welcomed the feedback and um, you know, that same editor, I felt so terrible for him because at the Michigan Daily, again, where we're deciding between 6,000 word features on Denard Robinson, we, the only thing we considered a feature was 2,000 words and over. Everything under that was like, oh, we can edit this in a night. Right. No problem. Right. And so I was writing a story on a walk on safety at Michigan and it was supposed to run on like a Wednesday morning or something. And I turned in on a Tuesday morning, like a 2,400 word story on him. And I get a phone call from Bob and he's like, who the hell do you think you are turning this in less than 24 hours to go? Like, what are you thinking? And I was like, you said feature. I thought, you know, I thought, you know, just over 2000 words is a feature. And he was like, no, 
800 words. What are you thinking? Oh my God. And so that's awesome. I just, I, I knew there was a lot I didn't know. And I still, you know, there's still, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly learning and I want to keep learning these things and being on college campuses when I'm there for, for visits, there's just sort of this, you know, I miss being in school. A lot of days I miss having professors. I'm still in touch with so many of my professors at Michigan, just because that was, um, I loved being in class. I was sort of that nerd that really enjoyed that. And so I do, this is a long way of saying, yeah, I really love getting, getting the editing feedback. Right. Well, that makes you unique in this business. I got to say, um, I hate editing. I hate editing more than anything in the world. <laughs> do you? I, oh, Why I hate, hate it. it. Oh, cause like, so I, I just want to say, this is the weirdness of it all. I think I hate most of what I write. Like I do hate most of what I write, but mm-hmm. I also hate people telling me what they, that they hate what I write. So, and also like there comes a point to be honest with you, when you're in the business for a long time, um, where you get a little bit, I don't know if it's cocky, but you get a little bit like, well, I've been doing this a long time and I know how to write a column and what the hell, you know, I don't know. I can't, I don't know. It's just, I've never, I've never enjoyed it. Um, but I think, I think your attitude is a good one. I do. And I think it's a wise approach. Um, let me see this. College football is, uh, through my eyes, um, oftentimes gross. Uh, the, the, I mean, we can go across the board from CTE and the physical damage these guys are doing themselves to coaches making millions and millions of dollars. Meanwhile, you have some kid from Gary, Indiana who can't, you know, can't afford whatever a hamburger. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, on and on. There's just a million things about college football that really is disturbing. And I wonder, as a, as a college football writer and someone who enjoys the sport, clearly, do you need to overlook that to a certain degree? Do you need to zoom in on that? Do you, does it not matter in your sort of world of more feature writing than, you know, hardcore day-to-day reporting? Um, that's a good question. I think you know, in the feature writing, I, I don't know if overlook would be the right word, but I have an opportunity to sort of find the moments that I guess are outside of all of that. Um, and I, you know, that's hard to say when I think CTE is something that could potentially affect everyone who plays the game. It's, you know, something, something I guess I struggle with in terms of the morality of this job. Um, for anyone who covers this job, you have to, I don't know, you just have to, you have to find a way to have those conversations. And I actually have, you know, I, I was sitting with a college football coach recently, and he and I had a really great conversation about, you know, he, this was all, um, you know, I didn't have my recorder on mm-hmm. and we were just chatting, but uh, kind of about the amount of money he makes. And he was asking me, you know, what do you think about that? Because it makes him a little bit uncomfortable. And I said, you know, it's hard for me because I have sort of um, my older sister is a social worker. And in college, I was a part of um, a group called the Prison Creative Arts Project, where I would facilitate poetry and creative writing workshops in prisons and juvenile detention facilities. And you know, I think storytelling is a really powerful medium and I've used it in ways that feel a lot more powerful sometimes than when I'm doing college football writing and just sort of all of those, those conversations. And, um, 
I think I'm still working it out. Uh, I hope I have a long enough career in this to figure out exactly how I feel. I've been laid off once, you know, we won't count anything out, but um, I don't know. I'm not really answering your question right now. Um, Well, it's a hard one to answer, right? I mean, it's a weird one. I mean, it's not a weird one, but it's a, it's kind of a hard one to answer. Like, how do we do, how do we cover this thing that we, people enjoy, but that has a lot of crappy elements to it, you know? And feel good about ourselves. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there was uh, the broadcaster who stepped away from it. And, you know, we'll see. That that may happen more and more. I don't know if, you know, I'm 28. I I don't know if this career is going to exist for the next 35 years that, you know, I hope to be working. And I also don't know if this is a career that I'm going to want to have for the next 35 careers or 35 years while I'm working. And so... Um, you know, I think I would like to hope that I am contributing to some sort of greater good or some sort of conversation. And I think when I, when I am at my best and I'm writing these stories that help people open up, um, it's a good thing. And my, my mini soapbox is that sports writing is the only self-help writing that people actually read because I think of, um, you know, my dad and the stories that I've written when, you know, I one of the stories that I sent to you is one about um, Bo Schembechler mm-hmm. and his his wife sort of cleaning out his office, um, and my dad kind of opening up to me about cleaning out his dad's stuff. And so, those are the sort of moments that I hope um, exist. And you know, if I play a small, small, small role in that, it's a good thing. I just want to say, if I were uh, writing down notes from this interview and I wanted my money quote, I would say. Sports writing is the only kind of self-help writing that people actually read. So I would have that <laughs> scribbled down and probably use it in my story on Chantal Jennings. Um, That's good. Yeah, good one. Let me ask you a final thing. You, uh, you, you got laid off at ESPN, like many people. You come to The Athletic. And what I'm fascinated by is not actually getting laid off by ESPN or literally coming to The Athletic. I'm interested in, because I've gone through this too, the – so. When you write for ESPN, you show up somewhere and it's, oh, she's from ESPN, 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 oh, ESPN, I'm from ESPN, oh, ESPN, you know, blah, blah, blah. And (laughs) since I've been writing, doing columns for The Athletic, literally today I called someone and I was like, hey, I'm doing a column for The Athletic. The what? Uh, Yeah, The Athletic (laughs) is this weekly thing, it's a pay site, I mean, daily thing, it's a pay site, blah, blah, blah. Do you find it any harder, more difficult? Do you have to explain who you're writing for? Is it, uh, I don't know, is it a different experience from literally the approach standpoint. Absolutely. How so? <laughs> it's, night and, it's night and day. I think, uh, you know, having those four letters open so many doors, I could send an email to probably anyone, right, that, that was involved in sports and include those four letters. And I might get a return email that said, you know, we're not interested, but I would get that return email. Mm-hmm. And now it's, I work for an, for the athletic and people say, what's that? And I'm like, well, it's this text, you know, it's a startup. It's two guys from San Francisco. <laughs> they started it. That doesn't really make sense. I guess I should find a better way to explain. And it's like every single time it's just word vomit. And I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this, you know, my elevator pitch to people. Um, and the first, one of the first stories I wrote for ESPN or one of the first stories I wrote for the athletic was, 
um, an oral history of the time that Jim Harbaugh was on Saved by the Bell. And it took me, you know, it's not often that I spend six weeks on a story. I envy the people who do get to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I needed six weeks because that's what it took for people in Hollywood to email me back because I was emailing these agents and these screenwriters and these producers who've gone on to do other things. And, you know, it took three emails and the third email that I sent, finally someone emailed me back and they said, all right, well, what is this thing? Like, what are you doing? What's this is like a college what? And right. so it's very different. I would say they're just, um, it's more explaining yeah. <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense. I think people, it's interesting sitting down with coaches and talking with them just sort of how over the last year, the landscape has changed so much in our field. Um, it wasn't long after the ESPN layoffs that sports illustrated had theirs and um, Fox sports pivoted. And so, this the coverage angle just looks a lot different and more and more coaches are saying to me that they're starting to notice that a little bit um whether it's just fewer reporters at games or um at sort of midweek practices or whatnot um it's definitely different i would say that's one of the drawbacks of the job but there are also a lot of really awesome things about it that i've enjoyed yeah it's a being able to oh go ahead i'm sorry Oh, no, I was just going to say being able to go drive up to Seattle for an entire day to go to a bookstore to write one story um, is maybe something I would have not have been able to do. Yeah, that's before. cool. That's cool. And was he, did Dante Pettis, was he cool with doing it for the athletic? Did you have to explain to him what the athletic was four times? Um, he didn't really ask about the athletic. The cool thing about that and something that I was not expecting was, and I don't know if this has happened to you ever, but we ended the interview. So we, had we went to the bookstore and then there's a coffee shop near it and so we sat down we had coffee and I was asking him sort of more of the football stuff and more about his reading habits and I turned my recorder off and I'm kind of packing up and getting ready to go and he goes so like how do you do this like and he didn't ask me what my process is necessarily but he was like so you're writing this tonight like you're turning you're gonna write this tonight so it'll publish on the website tomorrow and (laughs) like do you do you do you transcribe everything I say or and so you know, in the moment I was sort of like, oh, I was not expecting to answer questions. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my job. I'm the one that asked the questions. And so it took me sort of a minute to figure where my feet were. Um, but it made sense because he, he is a creative writing major at Washington. And so right. he, he goes through a process. And so, you know, equal to my interest in his process, he was probably thinking to himself, like, well, what are you going to do now? How are you going to do this? And I'll tell you something that funny was. about that story is um, I was thinking about, so years ago when I was covering baseball at Sports Illustrated, um, Buster Olney was covering the Yankees for the New York Times. And mm-hmm. one year he broke his thumb. So he'd been covering the Yankees for years. And one year mm-hmm. he broke his thumb and he shows up one day with his thumb in a cast. <laughs> and he said, one guy asked him what happened to his thumb. Like the entire mm-hmm. time he was in a cast, one guy on the Yankees even thought mm-hmm. to ask him what happened to your thumb. And it was always, t- it always struck me as sort of the nature of this business in that it's a very one way relationship. You know, we care and care about these guys and delve into their lives and ask a million questions. And they don't even notice that you have a freaking splint, uh, you know, around your thumb. So I guess it speaks well to Dante <laughs> Pettis that he was interested in your, uh, in your process. Cause that's a pretty rare gem right there. 
Yeah. And I think there's actually a lot of times, especially when I'm, I'm talking to people about more personal things that I'll sort of say, you know, you're allowed to ask me any questions because I'm about to ask you all of these things. And this works best when it's a conversation. And I sort of preemptively strike that and say, you know, feel free to ask me. And there are times when people will say, well, where are you from? And where'd you go to school? And all of these sort of things. But I can't really remember a time when someone has sort of ended, you know, the interviews ended and they looked at me and been like, okay, so what are you going to do now? Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so what am I going to do now? Yeah, so, right. I have no idea, buddy. Right. <laughs> like, well, I wrote down some of your quotes and I'm going to go home and hope this doesn't suck. Right. And curse at my screen for an hour, but it'll, it'll work out. Yeah. Um, well, listen, Chantel, you have, uh, you have survived. You have survived have. the podcast and you have, uh, you're safely now among the, the uh, honorable alum of two writers slinging yang. So I, uh, I appreciate your, uh, your time very much. I think you're a tremendous writer. Uh, I'm being sincere about that, like a really great writer. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love being introduced sort of to writers, uh, stuff, uh, more, more, uh, in more detail doing this podcast. So I'm, I've become a Chantel Jennings fan. Thanks for this experience. I want to thank today's guest, Chantel Jennings, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow her on Twitter at Chantel Jennings and read her work on theathletic.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on both iTunes and bumpers.fm. iTunes reviews are always appreciated and help keep a guy afloat. Music by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. I'm